When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Thanks to Sana Skin Studio for supporting the No Podcast. Sana is a skin studio that is shifting the relationship with your skin and your products through goal-driven facials, real guidance, and clean skincare. Stay tuned for our promo code so you can receive $25 off of your first facial at Sana Skin Studio. Welcome to the No Podcast with me, Nikki Spo. What is up, Light Beams? You are listening to The Know, where it's not about knowing everything, it's about coming to know ourselves. I'm your hostess, Nikki Spo, and I'm so glad you're here because today we have a powerful conversation going down with Dr. Natasha Polopoulos, who is a pediatric psychologist and an advocate for gender diversity and inclusion. You guys, go ahead and click that subscribe button today so you don't miss out on these important conversations. And if you're feeling it, leave me a five-star rating and review. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so Dr. Natasha Palopoulos is a pediatric psychologist in Miami. She completed her PhD in clinical psychology at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science and her fellowship at Harvard Medical School, y'all, and Boston Children's Hospital. She teaches seminars and trainings regarding gender and sexual diversity and an affirming care approach within medical departments and hospital systems. Dr. P is a member of the Society of Pediatric Psychology and has co-authored several peer review publications and presentations. According to Dr. P, every 45 seconds in the United States, one LGBTQ plus young person attempts suicide. LGBTQ plus youth experience significantly higher rates of suicidality, depression, anxiety, bullying, trauma, and homelessness. Current actions by Florida political leaders and the Department of Health, such as the Don't Say Gay Law and the criminalization and ban on pediatric gender-affirming care, are endangering LGBTQ plus youth and their families. Dr. P believes that family and peer acceptance and safe and inclusive environments significantly improve outcomes for LGBTQ plus kids and teens. She urges us to listen to the science, data, and healthcare experts on how to support our most vulnerable youth. I wanna make something clear before we dive in, you guys. Regardless of where you stand on LGBTQ rights and inclusivity, this is a powerful message about humanity. This space that I have created is safe. It's about people coming home to themselves. And I don't pick and choose who gets to be a part of that community. It's for all of us, because we all long for that deep sense of inner knowing, that sense of purpose, the confidence that comes with knowing ourselves and having our own identities. I am so truly honored to have a guest like Dr. Palopoulos share her time with us today. Let's get started. Welcome, Dr. P. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of this conversation, I want to start with you giving us some of your background. So I'm Dr. Natasha Flopolis. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a pediatric psychologist in Miami. I did my graduate school at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in Chicago, and I did my postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital. I'm an LGBTQ health expert in the sense that I work a lot on teaching seminars and trainings to medical staff and hospital institutions about how they can create safe and affirming spaces for all patients, including our LGBTQ plus youth. 
first of all, your educational background is really, really impressive. And, you know, I have worked closely with Nicholas Children's Hospital during my son's cancer treatment. And from what I understand, like Boston Children's is like the best of the best. So that's amazing that you got to work there. What was that experience like? It was a really, really great learning experience. It was immensely stressful. It is the number one children's hospital in the country. There is a lot of stress to produce and to see a lot of patients. It's also the place where the world comes for answers. So you see a lot of rare cases. You get to work with the best physicians, psychologists, PTs, OTs, social workers in the country. So it's a huge place to go to learn. How did you know that you wanted to study psychology? I think I always knew I wanted to work with kids. Kids element was first. Yeah, I always joke that sometimes I'm a big kid, so I tend to get along with kids. They're just so easy to talk to, and they have this sense of curiosity and wanting to learn. Then in college, I started to major in psych, and I feel like most people do that, and they think they want to be a psychologist, and then they realize it's a lot of school and a lot of work. But it's just so motivated because I always felt like I don't want any kid to ever feel alone, and if I can be that person that helps them feel more connected to the world. I don't want to be that person that can help. Did you ever experience that though, like growing up? I didn't feel alone. I felt a lot of love and support from my family and friends. And then when I got to college, I met a lot of people who didn't have that love and support growing up. So I always felt so grateful that I wanted to find a way to give back because I was so lucky as a kid. That takes a lot of awareness. I personally felt very alone a lot growing up. I feel like my sense of empathy comes from having experienced it. And I think that when you didn't grow up that way. The fact that you can still see it is really beautiful and sounds like you have a lot of empathy. And like, was that taught? Do you think that that's something that you're born with? Do you think that that's something that you learned through like the family of your origin? Yeah, my family's great. So they're very emotional and loud and also very loving. I think empathy is definitely something that can be taught and learned. And it's great because we know that social emotional learning for kids benefits them more in the long run better than getting better grades or doing well at sports. How do we do that? You know, I have a lot of parents listening in and who are probably like harp on these grades and the sports and the achievement and blah, 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 you know, like and keeping up and like the standards and like it's a rat race. The system is the education system. It's the way that things are set up. I couldn't agree with you more, like especially in the early years of childhood education, you're thinking like we need to get these kids socialized. We need to see how they interact with other. We need to teach them how to be with other people, how to show like love and care. But like, how do we do that? Like it starts at home, right? 100%. It's about modeling. Most of the things that parents do in life, as you know, because you're a mom, is it's about modeling. So kids will do what they see, which is why it's so important that we teach them inclusivity and we teach them kindness and empathy because when they see their parent or their caregiver or their grandparent display those attributes, they're like, I want to be similar. Then they learn to take perspective. Yeah. If someone pushed me, I probably wouldn't like it. And parents' role is to help them understand that and model that for them. Do you think that there's like a generational difference between like our generation and like our parents' generation about how we handle things like that? Yeah, I think there's things like the fact that mental health, we talk about it being less stigmatized, which I think it is less stigmatized. Luckily, it still has a long way to go. Kids are a little more open to expressing how they feel because parents are shifting to being more open. I think we're also in an interesting generation where my parents immigrated from Greece. They were in a point where it was all about the hustle and the grind. How can I set things up for my child. Being first generation in this country is an interesting experience because parents coming from little or no education are able to find ways to be successful. Where now, like you're saying, 
the school pressure and academic pressure is immensely. It's, it is so overwhelming. That's become really different than it used to be. Yeah. What led you to become an active voice in the LGBTQ plus advocacy community? Mental health is really startling among LGBTQ plus youth. About half of LGBTQ plus youth seriously considered suicide last year and the year prior. And about a quarter of those kids attempted suicide. Where are these statistics coming from? Who's observing this? The Trevor Project is the biggest LGBTQ organization in the country, and they have a hotline, which is great, so anyone can get support at 24-7. I think their last sample last year was about, they surveyed 34,000 LGBTQ plus kids in the country. They got a really diverse sample. So they do a lot of data analytics and statistics among LGBTQ plus users, and they're able to look at this data over time. How did you transition into that? I look at the trends among kids, and same with Black youth. For the first time in the past two decades, Black youth are two times more likely to attempt suicide than white. So I look at trends about what kids are more vulnerable and why is that. And a lot of what I've seen is it's because of their racial, ethnic, gender, and sexual identities. So that shows me this is an area that I really focus on because these are kids who are extremely vulnerable. So how can I advocate for them? And then when I see injustice in our sociopolitical climate, how do I speak up for them and how do I correct misinformation? And how do you do that as an individual? I do that by educating myself, always reading peer-reviewed journals, going to accurate sources, and then finding ways to make that digestible to parents, to people in the community, people who are not psychologists, who are not physicians, who are not researchers. Everyday people. Exactly. Another big way to do it is in my practice, telling kids that I am a safe provider what we talk about, there is a sense of privacy. But if you are ever in harm's way, I will let your parent know because a parent's job is to keep their kids safe. What do you think people are afraid of? I think people are afraid of things they don't know and things that are different from them. If something is different than me, then it's going to harm me. Do you think a lot of that has to do with the way they're raised? Yeah, I think it's the way they're raised. Like we said, the way parents model things for their kids. So when parents say really negative things about people who are different from them, kids pick up on that. They have really good antennas for receiving that information. And then they may start thinking of that way. That's the way they have like a schema. That's the way they start to see the world. By shifting how parents act and how they see the world, they can help kids be more inclusive and be more accepting. And like we said, empathic. And what does it look like when we're teaching our children to be more inclusive? Things we like to think about is creating dialogue around inclusivity for families. So right now we live in a world where it's always been gendered in terms of toys, in terms of interests, just teaching kids that toys are for all kids. It's as simple as that. I think people really underestimate how smart kids are. Like kids just want to know and then they get it and they roll with it. I think parents are just so scared, adults are so scared. Like, how do I explain this to a kid? And kids are like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So you love who the person is. Okay. And then they just move on. But it's like, it's more the adult anxiety around it. So Things like that simple, kind language. So I tell parents, you can do things like telling kids that all families look different. They can look different from ours. Some kids can have two parents. They may have one parent. They may live with a grandparent and a mom or a mom and dad or a mom and a mom or a dad and a dad. So there is diversity families. And then you go to those core values that I think we all share is that families are centered around the idea of love and support and families love each other no matter what. And that's true among all families. So you can still teach kids about the diversity of family while also creating inclusive language like we just did. So when families grow up and they follow a religious institution, 
that may not be as welcoming to inclusivity, right? Because we have all these faiths that are like, love everybody, love thy neighbor, love all this stuff. But then like, there's an element of it, whether we want to talk about the elephant in the room or not, that says heterosexuality, right? For reproductive purposes, because that is what is correct in the eyes of God. I think that religion has a place, right? Like, I think that we can learn a lot from religion. We learn foundation and core values, you know? There's a lot of beauty that comes from belonging to a religious community and a religious faith. And, right, because two things can be true at the same time, and that poses some difficult conversations, some difficult perspectives for a lot of families. How do you navigate that? I also agree. I've seen religion be extremely helpful for families, particularly I work with kids with chronic illnesses and kids who are end of life. And I've seen religion be, it's what keeps hope for a lot of families. And I respect that with families. I will join them if they ask me to pray with them. I think there are boundaries about like as a clinician in a family, what their religious affiliation may be. And just like you said, I can respect their religion. And I recognize for myself, there are still parts of religion that I may not agree given how I choose to practice, which is we treat all people with respect that gender and sexual diversity are normal aspects of human sexuality. So to your point, I think that if a family is of a specific religious affiliation, I think the specifics about the religion that are like core values to them, and they can still fit it in a way to their kids that remember, we treat all people with kindness. We are accepting of all people, even if they're different from us. It's religion specific, it's family specific, and my role is never to tell a family how they should be. It's just to simply educate people and to show them that when we are and accepting, we see those rates of suicidality, depression, anxiety, bullying significantly go down. This conversation is so good, but before we keep going, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Sana Skin Studio. The best way for me to describe Sana is that it feels like coming home. Unlike traditional facials, Sana's facials are rooted in education, and I love this so much. Every experience I've had at Sana has been a chance to learn more about my skin and its needs. I love that the facials are effective while also being accessible enough to be a monthly ritual rather than a yearly splurge. I'm honored to be able to provide our audience with a promo code. Use the code THENOGLOW for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. So let's talk about that for a little bit. What is at the root of the depression that is occurring and the rates of suicidality that is occurring within these youth, the LGBTQ plus community. 
We talk about this in minority stressed framework and what that means in the LGBTQ plus community. When we think about minority stress, we think that, okay, there are these proximal and distal stressors that kids experience. What's the difference? Gender and sexual minority individuals experience general and unique stressors. And that's a result of experiencing societal and interpersonal prejudice and stigma, which in turn leads to their poor outcomes. So, for example, proximal stressors would be things like internalized shame, guilt, identity concealment, feeling the need of thinking, when is it safe for me to come out? And who do I do that with? And who knows about my identity? And these negative expectations of how people react to them. And then distal stressors are experiences like discriminization, victimization, rejection. Distal is further, proximal is closer. So kids experience stressors, right? Then add that you may be gender diverse, you may be lesbian, gay, bisexual. You're adding another stressor, not because it's the identity that's putting kids at risk, but it's rather how they're experiencing society. So kids are being marginalized, they're being stigmatized, they're being rejected. The majority of LGBTQ plus youth are homeless. 68% are not accepted by their families. That's the stress that leads them to increased mental health symptoms like depression, anxiety, and suicide. Or the things that we talk about with distal stressors is when you think of a person, it's like, okay, they're stigmatized, they're discriminated. That's proximal. That's kind of outside and further, but it's still affecting them. When you think of how people are internally, there's internalized homophobia, there's internalized transphobia, there's shame, there's guilt. Is this my fault? Is it something I did. Those things are working together in a way that's going against how kids feel. And so that would be like more like once a person comes out. Well, it can be when they come out, but it can also be their experience internally before they come out. Okay. Because even if someone hasn't come out and they're thinking of it, when they feel that type of non-inclusive language, it starts to become this fear of, oh gosh, now I hear this negative expectation that when I come out, like I'm not going to be accepted. And life is going to be tougher for me. Well, and I think just like listening to these definitions, these distal and proximal stressors occur for everybody in every capacity, right? Like I have my own, I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh yeah, I know how I have a distal stressor in my life and I can identify how I have a proximal stressor in my life. And these things occur for everyone across the board, but they occur in a different or more severe or, you know, whatever way for LGBTQ plus youth. One thing that's important to remember with minority stress is that while there are so many things in terms of like discrimination, victimization, prejudice, internalized homophobia, transphobia, is that LGBTQ plus youth are extremely resilient. And there are ways that they can do really well in life. And those are the things that I'm trying to focus on. So things like family acceptance, coping strategies, social support, they safeguard LGBTQ plus kids against those adverse effects of minority stress. For example, one accepting adult can reduce suicidality by 40%. Say that again, and let's say it slowly so everybody can like really, really digest that. Yeah. So youth with one accepting adult are 40% less likely to have attempted suicide in the past year. Well, it's really remarkable. It's what it means to feel accepted and loved, even if it's by one person. Obviously, we know, everybody knows because they talk about it all the time, but the no with Nikki Spo, right? Like it's a cute little play on words and everything, but a lot of people mistake it for in the no, and it's not in the no, it's called the no. 
And the know is not about knowing everything. It's about coming to know yourself, right? Like, so this whole thing started because I wanted to have space for people. And as this happened as I experienced it for myself, like where I came to a sense of really deep inner knowing within myself about who I am and loving and accepting who I am and understanding like, I'm not perfect. I don't have everything together. There's still a million things that like I need to improve on. You know, I have character defects. I have flaws in my character and I have flaws, you know, that I work on and that I address. And, you know, when people I try to be open minded to when, you know, like people communicate with me about things that they don't like about the way I handle certain situations sometimes because that's going to happen. Right. But the known is about coming to a place of deep inner knowing where we feel a great sense of purpose of safety within ourselves, that our nervous system feels safe with who we are. And then we can go into like that whole self-love journey and how that helps us operate in the world. And so when I'm hearing you talk about this, it's like the acceptance factor for these youth. It's like, I know personally firsthand, and I'm not necessarily a minority and I'm not, I do not identify as LGBTQ plus and I know that has been a stressor in my life. My lack of acceptance within myself, my insecurities, my fears of not being loved and accepted for who I am has deeply affected my life. And I don't have those other stressors that other people do. You know, so the fact that like we're talking about like one person accepting you for who you are can make all the difference in your trajectory for depression or your at risk for suicide attempts. I think that's really important for people to hear. I think it's really important for parents to like really sit with, you know, like and look at their discomfort and sit with any discomfort that they may have because these things, you know, as a parent, I have three little children, you know, five and under and thinking about like who they can become in their lives and their sense of identity and how I'm supporting them in developing their sense of identities and holding their hands through that development. You know, I think it's really important that parents everywhere, family members everywhere, people everywhere, educators everywhere. You know, we listen to these conversations and we take this in and just sit with it. And if it makes us uncomfortable to hear about it or talk about it, don't, you know, immediately come to a place of judgment or putting your hands up, but just like hold it for a little bit. Just like hold it and sit with it. Really just just let it let it be before we pass judgment or before we come up with an answer or before we do anything. Like just sit. There's sometimes I think about like this quote that I heard, I don't know who said it to me, or maybe it was in some of the therapy work that I've done in my own personal journey, but like non-action is an action. Sometimes when you sit with something and you hold on to it, like you're letting it marinate, you're let, you're thinking about it. That's an action. And I encourage people before talking to sit with something and like hold it for a little bit. I love everything that you said. It's, it reminds me of cultural humility, the idea that we're not ever fully culturally competent. That's something that I think is so important for people to know about. And that's what we try to practice as providers is that we're never fully culturally competent, right? I'm not going to know everyone's experience, everyone's cultural identity, their religion, their race. What I can do as a person, as a provider is recognize and do what you're talking about, which is self-awareness and self-reflection. What do I bring into the room when I'm with a patient and a family? Their experience can be vastly different than mine. I can't think that the way they see the world is the way I see the world. And I can never assume that the way they're treated is the way that I will be treated. Just like you said, I am a white woman. Yes, I have higher education. I am in a position that I do see patients and I help people. And I think right now, being in the US and in general, being a woman is minority. And yet 
my whiteness and my white privilege are so profound in our society that I have to realize the way that a patient comes into the room, their experiences with palpier are probably vastly different than my own. So how can I create a more comfortable space for them? How can I ask them things after I do my own research in a way that is coming from a place of help me understand what that experience is like for you and never saying things like, oh, I know. Yeah. Like I know what that feels like. That is so invalidating. I couldn't agree more. So where do you stand on gender transitions for minors? This has been a really big conversation in our society. And I think it's important to note that last year was the year of the most anti-LGBTQ plus bills that were introduced in the U.S. We're in a state where I just see continuous harm against what we just talked about, kids who are vulnerable and prone to mental health disorders. And we know simple things like acceptance improves their outcomes. And we have all this data and literature that shows that. And yet we have people in political positions who are not educators, who are not psychologists, who are not physicians that are making these laws and making these policies that have no evidence behind them. So to answer your question, I think that Every parent should have the opportunity to access gender-affirming care for their child. And what that means is having a clinic that they can go to and they can talk to experts who specialize in this. And it is absolutely false that a child walks into a gender clinic and they suddenly start to transition. That's unfortunately the narrative that's being pushed. The reality is that kids are diverse. They need physicians they can go to. They need psychologists they can go to with their parents always and have conversations about how they feel about their identity and who they are. And parents being absolutely involved in those discussions so that they can make a decision as a family about what's best for them. Not all kids who go to gender clinics even end up transitioning. Kids that experience things like what we call as gender dysphoria, which is the clinical diagnosis for that significant psychological distress when one's sex assigned at birth and their gender identity do not align. And that dysphoria is so high that they may start asking about what are the options to transition. Some people just want a social transition, their name and pronouns, yeah, the way they dress, the way they style their hair. For some people, it's just that they're gender diverse. It doesn't mean that they're transgender. But I know this for some people, they may think this is extreme. But what I say is when you don't give people access to gender affirming care, it's like someone who has type 1 diabetes, you're not giving them access to their insulin. This is keeping them alive. The distress of not being able to be accepted in terms of yourself of who you are is horrifying. And I never wish that upon anyone. I wish that's what all these political people who are fighting about could see is come in and see an adolescent who is suffering and is under such tremendous stress because of their identity. And now you want to take away access to a clinic that can help them. I can't fathom living in a world where that's what's happening. And yet it is. What do you want to see happen? I would love for politicians to step aside and let medical and psychological experts and educators make decisions about the way kids are educated and about access to things like gender affirming care. And please keep in mind, again, one accepting adult reduces suicidality in an LGBTQL person by 40%. You can be that person. Anyone can be that person. All you have to do is acknowledge and accept. Dr. P, you're amazing. Thank you. Seriously. I appreciate your podcast because like you said in the know, you're basically saying I acknowledge that I do not know everything and I'm open to listening so I can better understand myself and my world and for your family. I have such immense respect for that. I wish more people were like you in that sense. 
hopefully we like capture some people, you know? Thank you. I really appreciate you responding and being flexible today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. This podcast was brought to you by Sana Skin Studio. Be sure to use my code, the no glow for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. More than a skin studio, Sana is a movement towards healthier skin and self-love. Thank you so much for listening to The No. If you loved this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend. Words are so powerful and someone may need to hear what we covered today. And if you really loved this episode, please take a moment to rate the show and leave a review. Your comments are so important and valued and they give other listeners insight on what to expect on The No. You can connect with me personally via Instagram at Nikki Sap Spo and The No with Nikki Spo. My hope for you today is that you are fearless and in looking inward so that you can be your highest, most authentic self and go after the life of your dreams. Mm-hmm.